Don't know. Somehow we got along without the microphone in Africa. <coughs> Greetings. It's good to, to be here with you all tonight. I certainly enjoyed seeing those slides. It took us back a little bit. Um, I guess I was asked because I was one of those that went along when we first did survey work. And uh, you'll have to excuse me. The one thing that improves with our age is our forgetter gets better. So... I may miss some details that I should have told you, and I may tell you more than what you needed to hear on some things, and I may get some dates mixed up, so be gracious with me on that. <clears throat> How did we get this opportunity for so many of our young people and families to be in Tanzania? Uh, Brian almost got you to raise hands, and I'm going to get you to. How many of you have come to the churches here in just the last six years? Raise your hand if you've come in the last six years. So a lot of these things happened. Those that have been here longer know it. You know, we've heard the stories and the mission reports and all of that. But to a lot of you who have come more recent, there's probably quite a few unanswered questions or knowledge of what happened that you just don't know. I'm going to be looking a little at Scripture. If you'd like to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. But I'm going to start by telling you a story. You can turn there a while, but it'll... I'm going to tell you some of the story and background first. Before 2005, you know, missionaries aren't born, they're raised. Do you believe that? Missionaries aren't born, they're raised. Uh, Brother Raymond Zyset has for years had a burden, a longing, desire to be a missionary. And you know, it has never exactly opened the door for him to go abroad to foreign work. He has been a faithful missionary for 25 years in the local prison and continues to do that work and is supportive to missions wherever and however he can. But it never was opened up. The door never opened for him to go. But he raised a son who carried that same burden. And so we, we see that this work started already back when Tim was a child. Uh, having that vision and burden put in his heart by parents. Cheryl the same. Think about a Lancaster County boy, never really went anywhere else, an Amish boy, and uh, he gets born again, and he ends up taking his whole family, picking up and moving to Michigan. Um, I know David a little, we spend time together in Africa, but I don't know him that well. But I'm going to tell you that I believe that man had a vision for expanding the kingdom of God in areas whether he felt comfortable there or not. That's what a missionary is. That's what they are. And so I'd say that they both had that kind of influence, that seed, the missionary vision planted in their hearts. Then they had the missionary vision watered. <clears throat> um, I'm going to guess most of you remember Denny Keniston. Uh, I learned to know Denny Keniston back around 1990. And one thing that stood out to me as one who loved missions that seed was planted in my heart by a great-grandfather who spent time in Tanzania back in the 1950s. And uh, Denny had a heart for missions. And if you listened to Denny's preaching for any four consecutive Sundays, you'd have heard that Denny had a heart for missions because it was going to come up, and it was going to come up strong. It was going to come up regularly that we need to do something about an unsaved world. And so... These young people were raised in an environment. A missionary vision that was planted by their parents was watered by the environment that they were raised in. 
Um, and so that was a blessing. The missionary vision was then cultivated. You know, as young people, not only were they hearing we need to do something, there was a church that was actively involved in making opportunities for them to do something and to get their feet wet and taste what it's like. I was here for the Philippine slides. I'm glad for those little opportunities for some who have never stepped off U.S. soil to go somewhere and see how other people live. But um, there were opportunities that were a little larger, sometimes three months or six months or a couple years. And those are some blessings if we can avail ourselves to them. Yeah, it's nice. I don't know how you are. I don't like to just jump in cold water. Uh, I'd rather stick my feet in a little bit and then maybe a little more and then a little more. And some of us are like that concerning missions. Um, when I was a missionary, I didn't get that privilege. I uh, got sent to Haiti and it was immediate and direct immersion. <laughs> so uh, if you get the opportunity to taste and see and feel just a little bit what it's like, that's worthwhile doing. It's a, it's a privilege, counted a privilege. That was missionary vision being cultivated uh, Tim had the privilege of taking SIL courses. What's SIL? Anybody know? Right. Summer Institute of Linguistics. Tim had a desire to learn and had some aptitude for learning languages and found languages fascinating. Um, I have said it and I'll say it again. Some of you here are trilingual, possibly. How many speak three languages? Anybody? Okay, how about bilingual? Two languages. So that means the rest of you are Americans. <laughs> the only people in all the world that only speak one language. And that has a problem with it. As we only speak one language, we have a narrow channel of understanding and thought. One of the biggest challenges of learning a second language is not the vocabulary. It's learning to think that language because it's not the same. Now, uh, we're not going to get any debates of whether Germans say it backwards or English say it backwards. We won't get any of those debates tonight. But know that for a German speaker to speak well, he must think German. And they used to say, you'll know you're really getting the language when you start dreaming in that language. Um, so, my encouragement is this. If you're young, learn a second language. If you're young parents and you're already bilingual, teach your children. You say, well, I don't need to talk to my children in Dutch anymore. Do it anyway. Because if you know two languages, it's much easier to learn the third one. When I went to Haiti, I had to learn my second language at age 36. And at age 36, it's very challenging. It took me an entire year to feel like I could get up and preach stumbling through a message without an interpreter. Anna Joy Kaufman, now, uh, let's see, what is her married name? Uh, Wirtz, yes, Anna Joy Wirtz. She came down as a young girl and, of course, knew Pennsylvania German. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, Pennsylvania German and Creole have no relationship to speak of. But it was the matter of thinking in a second language. And in three months, she could speak better than I could when I was there a year. It was so disgusting. <laughs> so, anyhow, I encourage you to learn language. Those are things you don't lose. 
You know, some people ask me, what language should I learn? Well, take, take one that's simple. Take Spanish. If you want to really learn a language, it's good to have someone that you can practice it on. And we're living in a culture right now where you can usually find Spanish speakers. And there are a people group who is really blessed if you try to speak their language. If you just say a little bit, just say God bless you in Spanish to a Puerto Rican person. And they are usually thrilled that you have attempted to learn something about them and their language. So that's my challenge on language. But, you know, they had the opportunity and Tim took it. Summer Institute of Linguistics with Wycliffe Translators helps a young person who is trying to develop and establish the ability to learn international languages and learn going past that how to take languages that have never been written and write them. Multiple alphabet that goes on beyond what we have. Now, uh, are, are you girls working on Sicella? Some. But you're finding it's challenging compared to Swahili. Yes. Creole is a simple language. Spanish is a simple language. And Swahili is a fairly simple language. A lot of common rules. Um, Creole, I can teach you to read Creole fluently in about 30 minutes. You won't know what you're saying, but you'll sound good. <laughs> and Swahili is that because there's consistent rules. English, don't even get me started. English has so many inconsistencies that it's one of the hardest languages to learn. Um, but Sicella. Sicella has never been written. Sicella uh, is tonal. Have you picked up on some of that? Okay, now I'm taking Tim's word for that because I don't speak Sicella either. But I do know if you take Mandarin Chinese, which is another language that's tonal, and you say ma, 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 you've said four different, totally different things, everything from mother to horse. So you better get it right. <laughs> How do you write a tone? Well, there's ways. And Wycliffe translators through their SIL courses teach that. And then other African short-term term uh, missions that Tim and Cheryl would have both been. Matter of fact, I think their testimony is they met each other on a plane, uh, got to know each other better on a plane on the way home from Africa. All right, so we have it planted, watered, cultivated, and now a missionary vision produces a bud. This young couple gets married. They get an opportunity to go to Kenya with a church up in Belleville. And uh, let's see, was David? I think your brother David and Merle were along, I believe. So um, they, they got an opportunity to go there and had the desire to not only see Kenya, but the country just south of Kenya is Tanzania. And they had heard Kenya's standard of living is one of the highest in Africa. Tanzania's standard of living is one of the lowest in Africa. And so they had developed a burden for the poor of the world and that there are 136 different tribal language groups in Tanzania. So uh, they took a little extra time. When the trip in Kenya was over, they took extra time and they traveled. And they ended up at Wycliffe Translators down at Dar es Salaam. And uh, from there, they were told about a group of people that Wycliffe had run into that they didn't know existed. They thought they were part of a larger language group, but they found out there's, there's this sub-language group that's among them that they had only identified within two years of the time Tim went there. And they were called the Key Sicella speakers. The Sicella tribe, they figured at that time they were guesstimating about 30,000 people. No written language. No one had ever attempted it. And almost no gospel witness. 
The closest thing they had to a gospel witness was some 40 years before we got there, the Catholic Church put a church there in one of the towns, not amongst the Sicella, but off with the next language group, the Wanda. And in Kamsamba, they have a Catholic church. And you could not come to the Catholic clinic unless you were a member of the church. So guess what? All the tribal people joined church. And I said, uh, well, a couple of things you can't force in life, and one of them is conversion. <laughs> you just can't. It's something where the, the person has to be in a cooperative mood with God. And conversion is, is the work of God in that person's life. So, unconverted people that are members of a Catholic church that they don't attend. <clears throat> we uh, thought when we were there to visit, we'd go and, just out of respect, we'd go and greet the uh, Catholic priest. So, we went to the Catholic church and he wasn't there. They said, well, where is he? Oh, he's down at the drinking place. <clears throat> the bar. So, we walked down the street to the bar. And when the Catholic priest saw us coming, he up and left. And I think there was maybe two attempts that we tried to catch up to him. Both times he was at the bar, and we never did catch up to him. So I guess he didn't, didn't really want our greeting. Um, I suspect he wasn't overly thrilled that we were there. So they are praying and seeking and traveling. They're on a bus, and Tanzania stood out to me. I was in Haiti. Haiti, everything is very crowded, compacted together. You can go from the desert to a, a mountaintop where it gives frost, to the tropical rainforest all in about uh, six hours' time. Uh, Tanzania spread out. It takes 12 hours at breakneck speed on a bus to cross the country, most of the country. And uh, when I say breakneck speed, I'm not kidding. My, I remember writing in my diary to my wife. I, I don't know why on earth I thought this. I guess I get car sick, so I like to sit near the front, and I sit right beside the driver. And when that uh, chubby little African man jumped up on the motor and went like this and hopped into the cockpit, we were in trouble. And I wrote in my diary, these drivers give much reason for fervent prayer. <laughs> uh, I had my eyes closed, but it wasn't always for prayer. It's just I didn't want to see what's going to happen next. <laughs> but at any rate, we did make it across the country. Tim's were doing that too before we ever got there. And as they traveled, they were sitting beside a man, and he got to strike up conversation with him. turned out he spoke some English. He'd been in the country over here in the United States numerous times. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he took college over here. But at any rate, um, they learned to know Nkumbu. And as they got talking, they found out Nkumbu lives in Mbeya town where they were heading because they'd heard about the Sicella. Nkumbu, who was a pastor... In Mbeya town, about an eight-hour drive from the Sicella people, I say eight hours sounds terrible, but it's only 75 miles. 75 miles in the district. That's Mbeya district still. But um, he vaguely had heard something about the Sicella people, but knew very little. But he really encouraged them that, yes, he believes that's the thing they should do. So they took that as of the Lord, and they came back, as young people with lots of zeal and a burden and a vision. And they came to us as a brotherhood and said, we need to go to Africa. And we said, uh, oh, really? <laughs> and so it did take a little bit of time. The bud is not a blossom. The missionary vision needed to blossom. And the part of that blossom was time for the rest of us to catch up to their years of developing this burden and this bud. And so I encouraged them 
to uh, take it slow. Well, nobody in that state of mind wants to take it slow. And uh, I know there were times that they were pretty impatient with us as a congregation because why don't we get it? we got to go do something. These people, and think about this, I don't know how long this tribal group has been around. They could have been around for thousands of years. And every generation, you saw their pictures, they live, they eat, they reproduce, they die, and they go to hell. And the babies grow up, they follow the same pattern, they die, and they go to hell for thousands of years. And if you had the opportunity to stop that chain of events, wouldn't you want to? And so that was their burden. Well, I suggested they read the book, Let Me Die in Ireland. And Cheryl was, I thought she might throw it back at me. (laughs) Uh, The book, Let Me Die in Ireland, was written by David Brousseau about Patrick, sometimes called St. Patrick. He was neither Catholic nor Irish, but uh, Patrick. And Patrick was a man who developed a burden for his former captors. They had captured him as a slave at age 17, and they took him to Ireland by force, and he lived in slavery for a number of years. He escaped, and he swore he's never going back to that place. And then he got born again. And when he got born again, the first thing God put on his heart was, you need to go back and take the gospel to the Irish people. And so he went to the church and told them that, and the church says, no, we hate the Irish. Why would you want to go over there? And so... He just kept seeking God and waiting. And that church made him wait 25 years till they caught up with a vision and sent him. And so, uh, Cheryl knew the story already. And when I showed her the book, uh, she wasn't excited about that as a possibility. And I encourage her that I don't think it's going to take 25 years. That church took 25 years because they were basically a dead church. They had lost their vision. The Anglican church had lost its way. And so I really wanted them to consider the need to just slow down and let the rest of us catch up. And that did happen. And we saw that happening. And there was a lot of discussion, prayer, in uh, brothers' meetings about what we need to do, what we should do. The whole concept was thrown around, we spent uh, um, hours designing mission strategies. We spent hours developing what we thought of as something new. I imagine others have done it. We call it congregational missions. The model of saying rather than having a board and maybe 20 churches all throwing money into an offering and sending it to you and then the board distributing it and using it for missions, that it would be much better for us as a congregation to be more highly involved in direct prayer and concern, emotional support and care for missionaries to feel as though we actually have a hand in it that uh, we would keep it just to our congregation. We're going to choose some from our congregation and send them. They're the spearhead. The rest of us are the shaft. Well, spearheads don't do much without a shaft. And so they're going to be that extension of our congregation going forth to spread the gospel in a place where it's never been spread before. And so that was the vision that we tried to develop as a congregation. I believe that happened. That was a lot of hours spent on developing a mission statement. Uh, Brother John and I and Brother Tim, I'm not sure if there was anyone else, we spent a lot of hours looking at our confession of faith and uh, 
The Confession of Faith, the original from charity, was a good confession. But it was written in a lot of antiquated English that when you took it to someone and asked them to translate it, uh, which was my experience in, in Haiti, I had a translator that knew four languages well, but he really, really messed up some of the things like we trust not in the arm of flesh. That really came out odd in Creole um, and didn't capture the meaning at all. So we thought, well, maybe it's time that we update some of the language, abbreviate some of the statements, add scripture references to prove what we're saying. And so a number of us worked on that for quite a long time because we wanted to be able to go that we have a mission confession, a mission statement, but also a confession of faith that can be taken anywhere in the world and translated. Now, I had already developed one for Haiti, but through a a strange chain of events, the one that we actually did that time got in the hand of Lamar Nault, who was supposed to have another man review translating on the one I had done. He ended up totally translating the one that we had for Harmony and got it back to me. Um, The church in Haiti loved it so much, they adopted it, and Life Ministries found out about it and has spread it all over the country now. So it's, as far as I know, the only Anabaptist confession of faith, but it's going all over Haiti, and a lot of people are really blessed by it. Those are some of the things that were preliminaries before we ever came there. Now, Swahili is the next one we're working on, the translation of that confession, since East Africa is a Swahili-speaking country. Our countries, I should say. All right. Now, we have the blossom. Missionary Vision produces an ear, September 2007. John Ray, David Lapp. Tim and Cheryl Judson was six weeks old, and myself, and I'm thinking Kimberly was along that time too, right? Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. At any rate, um, yeah, thank you. Uh, Some of those details were slipping my mind who all was with. We didn't stay together the whole time. When we got back to the bush, we decided we were going to let the lady folks out in town because we really didn't know what we were going to get into, and boy, are we glad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the first thing we did when we got back there as men, we were borrowing in Kumbu's, um, what was that thing, a Land Rover? Or, I think so. It was a, one, of those, one of those vehicles for rough terrain. And uh, the clutch went out when we got back to Kamsamba, which was an eight-hour drive into the bush. And it's a rough drive. It's a, it's a bouncy, rough drive. So um, David, who doesn't speak a, a stitch of Swahili, uh, takes upon himself to volunteer to drive that thing back out eight hours without a clutch and uh, find somebody and try to do signs and wonders, you know, make signs and they wonder, to get this thing fixed. So uh, he did that and he left Tim and John and I back in Kamsamba. Well, what are we going to do? We don't have a vehicle. We were going to go here. We are going to go there. We are going to go around survey villages. And now all of a sudden, what are we going to do? Well, we had heard that there was a white missionary on the far side of the Rukwa Valley somewhere, um, Ted Rabel. Anyhow, um, us three and our interpreter who didn't know the area and a young uh, Assemblies of God pastor who had just moved in the area, didn't know it either, all start out one morning. We're going to walk across and find Ted Rabel. Well, little did we know how big the Rukwa Valley was. I had one... A uh, liter of drinking water, and I think one or two of the others did too, uh, and that soon got all. And we were walking through heavy sand. It was in dry season. It was basically like desert. The leaves were all off trees. There were a lot of thorn bushes, and we didn't have a clue where we were going. 
We just kept seeing this mountain off in the far distance and saying, well, I'm just glad that we don't have to go to that mountain. Well, till the end of the day, we were on top of that mountain. <laughs> but um, we got pretty bad till that happened. It was probably, I'm going to say, 9 in the morning or something when we left, and it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We had been out of water from 12 o'clock. I had been sharing with my African pastor friend who was wearing a double-breasted suit and a tie, and, and it was probably, I don't know, 90 degrees or better out there. You still see that happening, don't you? <laughs> uh, and Tim is walking faster and faster because I think he's, he's, uh, he's feeling like he's running out, and I'm walking slower and slower because I am running out, and my vision starts swimming. <clears throat> and up ahead, I'm seeing in a near distance a palm tree. And I said, if we can make it to the palm tree, you can just bury me under there. That'll be fine for me. So we got to the palm tree, and uh, we passed out on the ground. And after a while, a big uh, sakuma, tall sakuma young man came to us, 22 years old. And uh, we started asking him questions. And we asked him, so uh, how far is town? Well, he said, it's not far at all. He said, well, how long will it take? He says, as slow as you guys are walking, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> So he did get us directed to town. It really wasn't that far, maybe another half hour. And warm orange soft drink never tasted better. So uh, we got our drinks. And, of course, this missionary had heard that possibly we'd be in Roca Valley. He was looking for Tim, one person, to be showing up maybe uh, a day or two later. So he was not expecting us. And we came in dragging. I mean, Tim had wore sandals. I don't know what he was thinking. And these throngs and the sand had worn through and there was blood and mud all over his feet. And uh, uh, I was shot, spent, and the rest of us felt the same way. I'm sure John did too. And Anyhow, we get up this little town and they said, oh yeah, David, he, he, he lives up on top of that hill. <laughs> that mountain we kept saying we hope we don't have to go to. So uh, we did start climbing this mountain up a pretty steep bankment, got to a plateau, and here comes the land where we're tearing down the mountain because someone had run up ahead of us. Told them we're here. They said, there's a bunch of white guys down there. He says, no, he said, they're not supposed to be anybody coming until tomorrow, he said, and it's just one. No, he said, there's a bunch. Well, where's their vehicle? They didn't have a vehicle. What do you mean? Where'd they come from? They walked across the valley. He says, nobody walks across the valley. <laughs> so he comes tearing down with his truck and he comes flying up beside us. He throws the door open and says, Dr. Livingston, I presume. <laughs> but uh, we were refreshed there, and he took good care of us. They had a beautiful guest house there, and agricultural work, and some uh, schooling on teaching welding to natives, and uh, sewing, and some other things that they were doing there. And it turned out he was from Quakertown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so we traveled 10,000 miles to meet a, a not so far away neighbor. Those were some of the experiences that we had when we were there. I won't try to cover them all because there were a lot that happened in a short period of time. Uh, we'll say this. As we were traveling across, God was with us in our total, absolute ignorance. We were not sure what to do next, and all we were seeing were cows and thorn bushes. And uh, we'd come to a parting in the path, and we'd say, now what? And all of a sudden, someone would show up. And we started saying, I believe that's our angel. And we'd ask them which way, and, they, and we'd find out. We hadn't got off the path. We're still heading the right direction. Now, Africans are kind of unique in the sense that they don't like to disappoint you. So that means they won't always tell you quite the way it is, because if it's going to disappoint you, you won't, they don't want you to find that out. So we'd ask them, how far do we have to go? An hour and a half. Hour and a half passes. We'd say, how far do we have to go? Oh, maybe an hour and a half. 
And that happened multiple times. The third time that we weren't sure where to go, here comes someone on a bicycle and a whole case of beer in the back. We were really having a challenge deciding whether that was an angel. <clears throat> but I'm going to say the whole walk was, let's see, 20 kilometers is what they told us. 20 kilometer walk, which is about 12 miles, which was, <laughs> anyhow, I don't know that we misstepped more than about 300 yards in all that time. Now tell me how that happens if you don't believe in God. So God was with us and guided us through some of those difficult challenges of the early days, doing survey work, trying to learn the lay of the land, trying to make decisions. Here's a young family with a six-year-old baby. What are we getting them into? (laughs) All right. You know, uh, it's been quite a while. While we were there, we we uh, visited with Nkumbu and his family, visited their church, visited the agricultural college where his wife is a professor, had the privilege to preach the gospel there in the ag college, um, and lots of other things. Lots of survey work. We got to know a lot of people. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me was an old man. And you know, these people are animists. That means there's lots of spirits in their lives. And one of the chief spirits that they have to worry about are the spirits of their ancestors. And this old elder of uh, one of the sub-villages of Avuna said to me, you know, he said, uh, we honor our ancestors. And I said, you know what? I said, we honor our ancestors too. He says, you do? I said, yes, but our ancestors knew Jesus Christ, and they wouldn't want us to do anything but worship him. And he just looked puzzled, like that was a totally new concept. I'm sure it was. But um, what freedom can be found when one yields their life to Christ? You can still love your ancestors, but worship them. No need, no need. Seven years have come and gone, thousands of Bible studies, hours of preaching, tons of sand, thousands of hours of language learning and translating. God has moved. Trust has been gained in the community there. And there is a small, and it is small, small nucleus of believers. It's hard in a tribal setting to be the one who breaks culture, to be the one that steps over the line. And that's true whether you're talking about Ivuna? Or you're talking about Pottsville? It's not easy to be the one that stands out. How many are in the chorus? Okay. When you were up at Pottsville, there was a young lady. And if I said, I want to say it carefully, but if I met her on the street, I would have thought her a harlot. She came to the chorus that night. Now, she has played the harlot in her life, has a child out of wedlock, and now has since repented of that lifestyle. But there's a lot of old life still hanging there. But she came up to me with teary eyes and she said, you know what? She said, that singing, your young people, that blessed me so much tonight. And then she admitted that she hangs out across the corner from the smoke shop at Representative Argyle's office and just listens and observes when our young people are up there singing. And she says... I just wish I could come put on one of those homemade dresses, stick on a bonnet, and jump into one of your families for the rest of my life. Are you having any influence? 
how many people in Avuna are just wishing that they could find the peace that these strange white people have and can't quite get the courage to step over the line? How many of you know what the future holds? How do we know that there's not 500 people? You know, when Paul went to Corinth, it didn't look very promising. Gambling capital of the ancient world. Horrible morals. And that would have pretty well described Evuna. Horrible morals. I never saw in my life, I lived amongst a bunch of drunken people in Haiti and I've been around them here, but I never saw a drunken bunch of people like I saw in the Sichella people. Two o'clock, they knock off their work and they start sitting around barrels of homemade beer and they drink till they're intoxicated. When we tried to survey those people, four o'clock, if you went after four o'clock, you couldn't talk to them anymore. They were just leaning and hanging on you and carrying on. You couldn't get a straight word out of them. Drunks. But how many wish there were something better? And they're seeing it a little bit in the distance now. We've been there seven years. The question is, what do we do with that? You know, we have one family there, pioneer missionaries, administrators. We have five single youth workers. And I want to say, and don't let it go to your heads, I see them being extremely dedicated and interested in doing what they're there for. You know, there are some young people, and I've seen this in Haiti, that come to the mission field, they just want to fool around. You know, they, this is six months to just kind of be away from home, kick up your heels, do whatever. But I'm not sensing that amongst our youth that have gone to Evuna. It's not really the kick up your heels kind of place. You know, 90 degrees at 85% humidity and dust blowing everywhere. It's just not, not really uh, exactly the, the picture of, of just living it up. And so we have a lot of things in place. You know, it is, it started out as a congregational mission, Harmony International Mission, and it's still your mission. You as a congregation, it's your mission. You're still the shaft to the spearhead. What you do or don't do affects 10,000 miles away. Today, it's still your mission. We must be the shaft that empowers the sending of the gospel message to the unreached people of this world. And HIM, to be very honest with you today, is at a very, very critical juncture. We've got a problem. We have a family that has poured themselves out in a dry and needy place for seven solid years. Yes, they had a, they had a time of coming back on furloughs, but uh, even when they're back, their heart's still there. You know, you don't get away from it that easily. And now it is time for them to have sabbatical. It's time for them to be able to focus a bit on Cheryl's health, which has been waning over the years. And I know you can say that in the past there's been missionaries that went out and their wives died and they buried them over there. And that has happened. And it may happen again. But it's not really our goal or plan to plan it that way. Uh, we leave the choices of some of that in God's hands, but we, we still believe that it's time. It's time for Tim and Cheryl to take a sabbatical leave. The singles are great, filled with zeal but cannot be the administrators of the house parents. Should we lay down the work among the Sichella after such a foundation has been laid? Should we say it's over, it's done? 
we need to close it now. All of our eggs were in one basket, and that basket's coming here. What shall we do? Do we believe it is God's will for us to stop? Now I'd like to read Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had an interesting experience with God. And I'm going to read, if you'll allow me, we'll count it as Bible study tonight from the Amplified Version. In the year that King Uzziah died in a vision, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the skirts of his train filled the most holy part of the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two each covered his own face, and with two each covered his feet, and with two each flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone and ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim, heavenly beings, to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity and guilt are taken away, and your sin is completely atoned for and forgiven. Now, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord. Have you heard the voice of the Lord? Isaiah said he was touched by God. Have you been touched by God? Isaiah knew that his sins and his iniquities had been forgiven, blotted out, taken away, dealt with. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? And if we say yes, and I believe most of us can say yes, we know that. The very next verse says also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. So, we have seen the Lord in a spiritual sense. We have been cleansed by that burning coal in the spiritual sense. And... God is still calling today. Who will go for us? And that's something we have to each answer. Now, I know that our expectation is not that everybody's going to up from their seat and go buy their ticket for Abuna. That's that's not the purpose. Matter of fact, I'd like to broaden this past thinking just about Avuna. If you're not sensing God's call upon your life for Avuna, where is his call upon your life? You know, Tim was faithful in evangelism in the children's ministry in Lebanon before he ever was called to Africa. Street work like is done in Pottsville is a great foundational training for more work later. And it may be that you never leave the country. Maybe. But I want us all to have that same attitude that 
I want to be exactly where God wants me to be. When I lived in Haiti, people used to say, isn't it a dangerous place to be? Well, I guess it is, but I never felt unsafe because the safest place in all the world to be is in the center of God's will. And so I leave you with that tonight. My heart for each of us is that we could be in the center of God's will, wherever that is. Why don't we stand together and pray? Our Father in heaven, we do thank you, Lord, for forgiveness of sins. We thank you for your willingness to reach out and touch us. And we thank you for your calling upon our lives. Father, it's mighty easy to just get comfortable here. This is a comfortable place. You've given us a good land and a rich land. It produces us much food. We have comfort and ease. We have houses that are sealed. We have roofs over our head that don't leak. But we know as we turn on the tap of our water. We're a small percentage of people in this world that have that privilege. Father, help us to be truly grateful for what we have. But help us also not forget. Many of us were carried into church as babies. We've heard the word preached since we're little. And now we hear it and we say, oh yeah, I heard that before. While there are still many in the world who have never heard. Father, help us to carry a burden to pray, to seek, to send, to do what we can in each place. We meet people in Pottsville that haven't a clue, never heard that Jesus rose from the dead. That's news to them. They're right here. They're right around us. It didn't used to be that way, but it is. Here we are. And so, Father, we pray you'd inspire us, fill our hearts with a deep desire to do your purposes and to fulfill your will. Bless this congregation as they work and grow together. And may you give us guidance and direction for your heartbeat as it continues, your spirit continues to hover over Avuna. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.